Hello and welcome to the Books to the Boardroom podcast. The podcast where we talk to CEOs, CFOs and executives about their career journey from an accounting or finance background through to leadership positions. We explore the challenges, the triumphs and the sequence of events that made them the leaders they are today. My name is Sumit Desanayake. I'll be your co-host. This podcast is proudly brought to you by my company Briska. Briska is a CA force outsourcing partner. We take care of a company's transactional finance functions and allow CA force to focus on the strategic, enjoyable part of their job. Show notes can be found at briska.com.au forward slash podcast and clicking on the relevant episode link. Thanks for listening. Hello and welcome to this episode of Books to the Boardroom. My name is Jack Ferguson and I will be your other co-host. Today we are very fortunate to have a shark on the show. And that shark is Dr. Glenn Richards, investor and director of the Richards Group, ex-CEO of Green Cross and an investor on Shark Tank Australia from season two to four. And Glenn chatted to us about all things entrepreneurship and leadership. As you can imagine, Glenn is a wealth of knowledge and was very generous with the insights he shared and the stories he told on this episode. We talk about what life is like for him after Shark Tank, how his companies did during COVID, his thoughts on the great resignation, in what ways employers are on notice and what employees need from their workplaces, what he needs to see in an entrepreneur to invest in them, his own transformation into a leader and the two specific moments in his life that ignited that transformation, the value of the Rockefeller habits and why he has been using them for years, how leaders can develop themselves, what he thinks about the current state of leadership in Australia and what advice Glenn would have for young people coming through the ranks now. This really was an episode full of insight. I'm sure you will enjoy it. Let's talk to Glenn. So today we're here with Dr. Glenn Richards. Glenn, how are you doing? Great, Jack. Thanks for the invitation. Thanks for for coming along. Now, a lot of people might know you from your stint on Shark Tank from 2016 to 2018 as an investor, but they also might know you from being the the man who built Green Cross from a, a small company into a a very large one, but uh, I want to start with what, how do you refer to yourself now? That's a good question because my, my daughters struggle to understand what I do, so it's <laughs> interesting to try and hear them describe it, but um, I guess if I have to describe myself, look, I, I invest, I find um, good companies, generally with passionate and, and entrepreneurial founders and work out how to best work with them and uh, um, I guess the more money I put in as an investor, the more focus I have on that investment and, and uh, often I'll take a, a board role. Um, so I have five main companies I'm involved with now, mm-hmm. uh, plus a whole bunch of smaller smaller investments that uh, I'm there to support the, the founders if they want a phone call or a chat or a coffee. But uh, my five main companies, two are public and three are unlisted, but they're all pretty sizable and chunky and... and um, I guess my job is partly chairman and or, or a non-exec role, and partly you know mentor there for the CEO. And, and you know, having done it, been a CEO for eight years in in uh, Green Cross Limited's day, certainly there's some reflections and experiences that you know I throw it out there. I, hopefully, I can de-risk their journey. So hopefully, I can support them because uh, it can be pretty tough when you're the the, the CEO. Mm. True. 
Mm. And uh, when you talk about being an investor now, I wonder what the deal flow is like since Shark Tank. Has that uh, changed at all? Well, well look, I look back and, and uh, you know, I think we've told a story with you before about Steve Baxter um, getting me drunk and next thing I ended up on Shark Tank. But, um, you know, the reality is um, I, I was having a sabbatical and wanted some time off and... Uh, Steve convinced me to put my name forward and, and uh, uh, somehow we ended up on Shark Tank. But I think a key part of that reason was, one, I had never been on TV and I thought I had to take on the challenge or my daughters convinced me I had to take on the challenge of something different out of my comfort zone. And the other part of it was I was in that transition from going from the management team and, and being a CEO um, to having a bit of a partial exit and having some uh, some money that needed to be invested wisely. And, and I guess part of that pocket or bucket of money um, decided there was going to be some real estate and managed funds. The middle bucket was going to be high conviction, investing with founders or alongside founders and, and helping them grow their business. And then I was going to be involved in a, in a bunch of, of earlier stage companies. And, and I think the Shark Tank profile was exceptionally good for mm-hmm. that. So to this day, we still get easily a weekly approach, if not you know two or three times a week approach uh, to look at really good companies, to have a look at their pitch deck, to have a look at their their IM, their, their, their information memorandum. And, and it gives me the opportunity to, to you know choose some really great investments and, and um, invest in some excellent founders and excellent small or early stage companies. Mm. So that's three years on now and you're still feeling the effects of that. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Right. You know, as any of us that have been there on, on Shark Tank, you know, we're still tarred with that brush. You know, yeah. we're, 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 we're Shark Tank panellists. Um, you know, we put spent a lot of time looking at, you know, early stage and, and uh, scale-up type companies um, as, as Shark Tank panellists but also outside that. And, and look, it is, a, it is a bonus yeah. to have a bit of profile and, um, mm. you know, we set up the Richards Group as a as an investment entity around uh, about the same time. Uh, in the last couple of years, I've found it a little bit lonely to be investing on your own. So I've linked up with a couple of mates, and we've now uh, set up founder-led investments. Founder-led okay. investments. We even have a website and a profile on on each of us that are involved, and uh, and that also helps with the deal flow across. Uh, so one of the guys is uh, my old mate from from uh, Pet Barn days, Paul Wilson. So he has a deep understanding of retail. Uh, we have Max White, who was uh, one of the early founders of Data3, and then went on to uh, start another business that he sold to NTT Data, Japanese Post. So he has a strong understanding around technology and, and, uh, and, and how important that is in terms of digital transformation of companies. Uh, and then you have me as the professional services side and a little bit of retail, uh, food technology, and, uh, and then we have John Lawler, uh, who's always been involved with me as, a, as my analyst, but he's now the analyst for our group. And, uh, and he also works inside uh, one of my, my investments as uh, the CFO of Naturo uh, Avocado and Milk right. Company. So yeah. you know, much more fun working with others, and, and, uh, but at the same time, that profile does help. Yeah. And so you've been doing that for a while now? You keep getting in? Uh, look, the founder-led investments, uh, about two years. Okay. Uh, yep. Still invest independently, um, as well as... You know, we work together on projects, mm-hmm. and uh, sometimes the guys will say, "Not, not one for me," or I'll say, "Not one for us," uh, <laughs> yeah. and then you still go ahead and invest for various reasons. But most of the time, we work work together and, and invest together. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay, so two years ago, so that would have been just before 
COVID, would it? Yes. yes. Yeah, very much so. How was COVID for you and, and your companies? Look, the same as everyone, we didn't know what was going to happen. March 2020 was a pretty tough month because we, you know, we pulled back on everything and started examining and, and had all, all our CEOs and CFOs on notice to, to, to you know, model up the, the big catastrophic event. If, if business shut down for two or three months or longer, what would that mean? So, you know, and, and where can we find savings or you know at the end of the day i made it very clear the entity had to survive mm. COVID, and there was going to be a lot of pain to get through and then thankfully you know job keeper came through mm. uh, scott morris and the prime minister and, and josh frydenberg said you know he's his job keeper and look at like many businesses across australia it just diffused the situation instead of looking at you know where we were going to cut expenses it was now how can we get through this with the support of the government and it was seriously important across mm. just about every one of my companies that that you know we saw there was there was a train track you know where to go yep. and uh how best to get there and you know thankfully it was a very smart decision that meant across our companies we kept our employees engaged um, most of our senior management and senior leadership teams and boards took pay cuts um, through that time and and uh, we simply went on the front foot making sure our people felt supported you know okay. gave them hope uh, that that things would get back to normal at some point mm-hmm. and uh, it was pretty key so COVID looked tough um, but it was what I saw with my leadership teams the people that I mentor and support is was a common thing was very humble deeply respectful the people that work in our businesses you know in the front line and they are the number one asset that we need to keep and support and JobKeeper you know, made sure we did that. And, and uh, I still look back on that period, that crisis or that p- crisis period as defining moments in the way I s- looked at my, my, my CEOs and my senior mm. leadership teams. They w- would go the extra mile, they'd support their people and made sure our culture was really strong across all my companies. Really important. Uh, and, and you know, as we've come out, the next couple of years are going to be amazing times for, for Australian companies. We're, we're well set, where vaccination rates are well up. Um, yeah. You know, okay, the borders are slowly opening, but at the end of the day, we are set for, I think, a bit, bit, bit optimistic to say absolute boom times, but we're, the, the economy is going to be very positive. It's mm. the flow on effect through most of my, my organisations is, is, you know, we're quite excited uh, that we will continue to, to, you know, and the number one asset. Is your people, and if you looked after them through COVID, they're going to hang around and and, and reciprocate that loyalty, mm-hmm. and uh, that you know that's key to any business. That that deep respect of your frontline people, how best to look after them, how best to support them, how best to to, to make them great so they can do their best, mm-hmm. give their discretionary effort, give their discretionary best thinking, and uh, and that reciprocated loyalty is so important. You know, we looked after you through the tough times, and we hope you know. Because there's going to be a big push on on uh, on wages and salaries over the next couple of years, mm-hmm. um, so it's who is doing the best job and looking after their people, giving them the best career path, and and giving them a place that's exciting to work in, uh, and you know that, those things are important. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Like you know, I think among most of the measures that government um, sort of you know put forward, I think JobKeeper was the most effective one from my perspective, and it kept the businesses going. Absolutely. Instead of you know cutting the cost, of course, they kept everything together, and especially the team for the you know growth when the growth comes back. Of course, you need the team, right? And I am like you know that 
in you in the US I'm probably I'm sure you are aware of like there's a great re- resignation is happening like uh, look it's an interesting one isn't it I think you know what covid gave us all a little bit of time to think mm. a bit more and that I guess the way we want to set up our lives and our lifestyle is not to be fully you know over encompassed with work but work is part of who we are it's a social structure that's important a lot of the young people just want to get back to workplaces because mm-hmm. there's vibe there's ambience yeah. in those workplaces but at the same time you know that when you're working on project stuff where you got mm. need quiet time and focus it's okay to work from home so this hybrid mm. business model probably is here to stay you know as everyone telling us it's simply sped up probably an evolution that was going to take five to ten years it's happening in you know under under mm. three years um, I just think you know COVID, COVID gave us all a little bit more reflection time and uh, we've all decided that that you know it's not all about money it's it's <laughs> it's having good health it's having good friends and family around us it's having the type of lifestyle that w- means we'll stay engaged and and uh, focused a lot longer and the good workplaces know that they're they're lifting their game to make sure they're capturing the best of the best and quite simply you know that's pretty much what I think we'll find that's coming out the other side that the leadership teams that stepped up to the plate that supported that you know they all got tired I saw all my teams get very very tired because they're out there putting it on the line for their the way they supported their people but at the end of the day you just shake yourself off and, and you know the next year or two is going to be very exciting and those CEOs and leadership teams that are looking after their people and getting them engaged um, and, and answering what the employee wants and that's what this great resignation is about you know and, and I, I've always had the view it's a two-way conversation yeah, between okay. leaders and employees it's a two-way conversation right. are we looking after you how can I look after mm. you better and throw it back on you I'm expecting more productivity from you or more engagement from you, but I need you to tell me if I'm not looking after you well so I can do something about it. And I think the great resignation is very much about having a look at over the fence and going, is this workplace really ticking all my boxes? And the key to leaders is asking them, what boxes do you want me to tick? Mm. And it's okay. You know, millennials, Gen Ys are always pretty good at it, (laughs) but the Gen Xs were not so good at it. And I think this is coming all the way through. What's wrong with having a two-way conversation on a regular basis? Why aren't you happy here? How can I make you happier? And if you're happy, you're going to be more productive and engaged. You're going to look after my customers better. You're going to be doing all the things that make this place fun to be around. And that, that's, that's what employees want, a fun place to work, to be respected. Mm-hmm. And part of being respected is to be paid a respectable market rate salary, have some sort of perhaps a bonus or ESOP system over the top of that. Um, but at the end of the day, it's put us all on notice as employers that we have to do a better job of looking after the number one asset in our business, and that's our employees. And this great resignation is very much around that. It's true. true. Yeah, it's, it's interesting the the way that you're describing your, your leadership philosophy there. Is it is it what you've always had? Is that the way you've always looked at leadership, or has that been an evolution for you? Look, I, I think I've always had a deep respect for those who worked Alongside me, I remember mm-hmm. coming out of a veterinary hospital in, in Townsville. I had five hospitals. I had a, a team of twelve vets. I had forty or fifty staff members. O- I always had a deep respect, and I always led from the front. You know, I was on the roster, mm-hmm. equal to every other vet in the practice. I was always the backup guy for all my young vets to call at any time of the night. So you just have that respect 
for the people you work alongside. When you see a receptionist doing a great job dealing with a customer and you just know they're doing mm-hmm. such a good job. So I think I think it's partly evolution but partly, you know, just an intentional respect for mm-hmm. people that are working alongside you, intentional respect for people that are that are part of your business and you know that they're your number one asset. So mm-hmm. as as coming out of professional service, you know, these are trusted advisors for the for the family, the family pet. Um, just a deep respect for what they do. It's an emotionally fatiguing business, and I knew mm. that from day one. Mm. Uh, and, and therefore, you take that onto the wider stage of business, and you, it's the same what thing. You're wanting your people to be the trusted advisor, no matter what organisation, be it our camping and leisure business, through to you know wanting people to drink our milk. It's the same concept yeah. that that you're asking the consumer, the customer, to engage with your people or your product, your service, and 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 it's still back to that. You know that that respect that that uh, that you know people as employees give a lot, mm. and you respect them for that. But you also got to and the thing I was bad at in the early days, and I probably still am now, is giving feedback. Okay, <laughs> you just roll along and you thank you very much. You know, having a great day, but you know, well done. But that that deep and considered feedback is is what I'm getting better at as okay. the older I get. Right. Uh, but at the same time, I made sure our workplaces were lots of fun. Mm. Uh, we had good. Um, you know, employment conditions and salaries and wages and, and all that grew up with time. Mm. Yeah, absolutely fascinating. So, so when you look for, to invest in, in someone, will you look for that specific leadership philosophy in them as well? Absolutely. As an investor... I thought I was going to get that in, so yeah, yeah. Absolutely. But, <laughs> you know, when you're looking to invest in, a, in an entrepreneur you want a humble personality mm. that that respects your money that's coming in that respects the team that they're putting around them uh, but at the same time they've got enough ego to back themselves and to go for it but when you've got a narcissist leading an organization <laughs> it's a shit show because then they're, they're not willing to listen to their, their leadership team they're not mm. willing to listen or seek out mentors they'll pretend to They'll, they'll be listening when nodding and thinking something completely different over here. So, you know, good entrepreneurs assemble good teams. They put some mentors around them, not just one, but a few, and they actually do consider other people's opinions and, right. that, and that other people in the room are probably as smart as them, if not smarter. And what I, what I, where, when I've got it wrong as an investor, when I've really got it wrong and, and backed the wrong people, it's because they were narcissists. They really? always thought they knew more than me. Right. And that's fine if they do. The, fine if they are smarter than me, but still listen yeah. because I'm putting a chunk of money in, probably sitting as an advisor or a board member, and therefore they should take some notice of my opinions, even if they're just thought bubbles. And it's the same. I, I, I now go looking for people like that. That There's never just one entrepreneur that they've cut, turned up with with two or three key people, and it's often a good finance person, a good operational person and a founder or, or entrepreneur that, that sort of understands the where the product or the service has got to land in the marketplace, be it, a, be it a, an invention or an innovation or a whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, so I look for two to three key people yeah. if I'm going to invest, not just one, because there's got to be a little bit of depth in the early days and then build out a better bench strength in the leadership team. Mm. Um, and they've got to definitely you know, seek out your opinion uh, and and you know I don't need them to follow it. I just need them to reflect on it. Mm. 
yeah. so that they're actually considering that other people's opinions are valuable. And, and, and you know, you read, you read Liz Wiseman's uh, book, The Multipliers, and it's the number one thing that, that really, the, the, the diminisher trait, the big diminisher trait is the narcissist who thinks they're the smartest person in the room. Right. They're the genius. The great leaders are the genius makers. Those that can assemble and get the best out of people, get that discretionary effort, discretionary intelligence, mm-hmm. and help build a great organization. Yeah. Love you say that, like, you know, um, most of the entrepreneurs, like, they start themselves, but if they can't uh, build up a team, I think there's no scalability. Correct. So if they can't work in a team, um, they can't grow the business to the next level. So I have seen a lot of people get started with the passion and all that kind of thing, but as you said, like some of them are like, you know, they got a very dictatorship kind of thing, but they don't <laughs> go, go with the other people. <laughs> and, and there's no room for command and control personalities yeah. in, in, mm-hmm. in business. It's very much about, you know, shared sh- a shared view, shared vision, where are we going? And, you know, you have robust debates. There's nothing wrong with that, but everyone's opinion should be equal when it's put on the table mm-hmm. and not some dickhead who thinks that they're the <laughs> smartest person in the room and, and uh, you know strongly strongly endorse you know you look at the great organizations now it's very much about servant leadership styles and multiplier leadership styles and the old command and control from the 70s and 80s that just don't just not needed because right. you're trying to create multi-level matrix type organizations where you deeply trust people to go and execute whatever they, their project or, or their accountabilities, um, and, and you know, if 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 you've got the control freak, uh, <laughs> then they've got to be across everyone else's detail, and then they've got to give their opinion, and it just slows up the whole organisation. Mm. And when you talk about that control freak type person, it's so refreshing to hear you you talk about how you think um, businesses should grow and what leaders should be like, but. How common do you think it is? I'd be I'd be interested in because it, my perception, and I think other people's perception of business at times can be that that's a. Also, I think some people get into business because they think they can, you know, rule from the iron throne. Yeah, <laughs> and, and, and look, I, I do love people having a having a go at business, but I always say, show me your business plan, put the time and effort into at least thinking about it and trying to financially model it up and put a, a marketing and a business plan around that. But but you know, I still think you just got to be so careful and I often often reflect on you know people I met in meet in small business and and they think they've absolutely got it because they've got one really successful business with four or five people in the workplace and they're not listening anymore yeah, yeah and, okay. and often small business stay small because they're not assembling uh, a good team who can challenge their thinking and grow with them uh, they're not finding mentors that can challenge their thinking and lift you know how they're thinking about the future and their vision. Um, you look at big organisations when you put the narcissistic leader in; it suddenly becomes a bureaucracy. With with that, right. you know, people are being judged, and so you don't get that nimble entrepreneurial mm-hmm. um, capability in that organisation, and things start to slow fast. You know, I, I, I've seen it regularly, but it's it scares me that that uh, you know that the narcissist has this undying view that they are a, a gift of business and they'll get there mm. and some are but you you, you know but it's rare mm. it's rare they make it they rare they get to scale up a large organization yeah because you do need a, a, mm. a pretty accomplished leadership team across a whole bunch of things you have a very driven leader but they also got to be very humble and and, and you know seek the counsel of smart people inside and outside their organization mm. 
And it's interesting, I think, I'm just reflecting now and and thinking about some of those narcissistic type leaders. It does seem that they can can bludgeon their way to a small ish business so right they can kind of or even even a big even a big one right okay absolutely they can play play politics beautifully yeah right okay there you go (laughs) it's not just the small business but uh, you know it is is scary to see that when they end up in Mm. in in the hierarchy and next thing you end up with the bureaucracy yeah it's it's, so that's a good place to avoid right sounds like a a tough game to play to me to deal with someone like that but uh, I wanted to ask about your personal transformation from you talked about being that technically minded type person to becoming a CEO and realizing that you didn't have to be across everything and across all the details and and it was your job to hold other people accountable can you talk us through what that was like for you like how did that come to be what was the trigger what made you do that I think uh, two major events two two epiphanies one one was first when i just had my, my group of practices in townsville and um i decided to take three months off for an extended honeymoon after i got married and uh disappeared for three months around the world and when i came back the practice had gone back 30 percent okay. at the top line wow. and uh it was just chaos and i realized that the business so depended on me because i was you know the control freak walking the front door phones are going crazy people are lining up waiting to see me I had to go and check the animals and the nurse would be waiting for me to you know tell them what 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 medications light bulb needed changing here I can do that too so you know I had to transform from the control freak into better at delegation and and you know I guess work out better structures how to support our team better and and also emotionally invest in them and 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 trust them Um, so we started putting lots of systems and processes in a small business to make it uh, more capable of being there without me having to be there every day so that was the start so Mm -hmm. i really got on board with with uh, the old e-myth approach to to turning a business into a you know a turnkey type operation so that was a start and then much later, um, bumped into a couple of guys who, who uh, had optioned up some vet practices and next thing we rolled them all together with my mates from Brisbane. Uh, we'd, we were in a co-op at the time, so we turned a cooperation or a co-op so we all continue owning our practices independently but we contribute to a central pool for bookkeeping and a bit of marketing. It's a pretty basic co-op. Uh, and then these guys turned up, had 15 practices optioned up and, and wanted to do something. So we actually put our 17 practices with their 15 practices rolled it all together and next thing we listed and uh, everyone else stepped back and I was still standing and turned up as the managing director of a publicly listed company with very little experience of being a CEO I put on a good CFO at the time he'd had public company experience but he formed the opinion very early that um, I was too naive too green and probably not capable of doing the job and he's probably right but you know big big uh passion for wanting to do this it was veterinary practices and if anyone was going to pull together veterinary practices across australia it needed to be led by a vet not mm. not an accountant or a or a, or a private equity guy <laughs> yes. so, or a merchant banker so uh, so i had a pretty strong view that i was the right person but maybe i didn't have the right skills so i spent a, a fair bit of time trying to evolve my skill set to to be more like a ceo and um, and my chairman um, said look i think you need to come along to a growth faculty uh, workshop we've got Vern Harnish um, and he's uh, well known for for the Rockefeller habits and pulling tools into your toolkit to be able to help manage companies with more discipline so 
um, he's famous for the one-page plan. Keep it all simple. Put it on one page, and, and there's what you're trying to achieve every 90 days. There's your KPIs. There's your, your vision for the future. And uh, so I came out of the Avern Harnish workshop, and probably the m- most important epiphany was that I didn't have to know everything right. as, as the CEO. Because as, as a vet, you, you tend to need to know everything. Okay. And uh, why is that? Because we're the, the local hero for the oh, okay. for, for the family pet, we're going <laughs> right. to save we're going to save it, and, yeah, and, yeah. Uh, and the you know the family come to you with their pet, and you've got to yep. have all the solutions and right. help, help yeah. them out. And so I guess as a so do you so, mean sorry, just do you mean every know everything about animals yeah. or know everything about everything? Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> look, I've met plenty of vets that think they have to know everything about everything, <laughs> but right. I've, I've okay. got to that stage in life where yeah. I'm far more humble, and, and I know you're never going to know everything, and you and you seek out mentors. But uh, but the epiphany for me was was uh, what I had to be good at was was culture and vision and leadership skills to, mm. to deeply support my, my leadership team and take that support deeper into my front line. And uh, I realised then that I had to find great people, delegate to them, and I went became the master of delegation. And, the, and all my team would say, you know, let them loose, hold them accountable and responsible, who's doing what, when. And, right. and, uh, and we use that framework of the Rockefeller habits to make sure we were progressing fast. So the daily WhatsApp huddle, the weekly storm or strategic operational review meeting, our monthly management meeting that encompassed the middle management and the senior leadership team in a combination of the projects we're working on and also education pieces, make sure we're all on the same page and that would then cascade down into the organisation. And then every three months we'd pull the senior leadership team up and we'd head off for a, for a you know full day resetting the company. What are the internal and external forces or trends that are affecting our company? What are the big opportunities we need to go after? What are the roadblocks stopping us get where we want to get to? And then we'd spend the day debating what's the th- number one thing we're going to do for the next 90 days to move this company forward. And I love that. That's why I love the Rockefeller habits. And then we'd end up with three or four minor key priorities that we'd work on but the number one priority would be company-wide supported by the whole senior leadership team and then you know then we'd go back into our meeting cycles and and uh, that would then support where we're trying to get each 12 months our 12 month goals and that would then support where we're trying to get to in three years our financial targets which then also then aligns with what our vision for the company was so you know all those mm-hmm. things and with a, a back uh, framework around our culture, our KPIs, and all our brand promise—all those things that then support all those pieces. So, yeah, you know, it was it's, it's exciting framework, but it keeps it simple, gives you a, a you know, an approach. Yeah. And there's plenty of other ways of doing it, but but I do like the Vern Harnish uh, Rockefeller habits. It gives mm-hmm. you a nice framework to focus and and, and uh, support your growth. So it turned chaos into <laughs> into really disciplined growth, and we went hard for about six or seven years. Um, when when I finished my tenure as the managing director of Green Cross, we looked back over the five years preceding that. Um, the the we made the top ten companies you should have invested in the ASX. So we were we were in that top ten. One of the companies, nice. and there's what two or three thousand companies on the ASX. So that's five year period of sustained, consistent growth. Um, yeah, it was it was great. So, if you'd invested in Green Cross, you would have got a fifteen hundred percent return on your on your money. So, so I felt pretty chuffed when I finished my last AGM and I had a, a an old 
shareholder come up and say thank you, you, yeah, you, right you, you, you I invested in you when you're a dollar a share and and uh, you know you got through to about ten dollars fifty but thank you you changed my life so that, wow. you know as a CEO you go wow that's that's, that's amazing big big part of what you do right and would you get that type of feedback that often would no. that be pretty uncommon <laughs> yeah <laughs> I was just, just thinking <laughs> no you know yeah. and, and some companies do it you know I've invested in in companies that have delivered you know three to five times multiple monies and and you give the the ceo a a very expensive bottle of red wine and a big hug because you know people don't realize how hard it is and that and and you go share that with your leadership team because they deserve that Mm. Um, but you know it's just it's business is not easy it's not easy and when companies deliver for investors like that it's important you let them know Mm. and when you talk about this framework if i'm reading between the lines right you still use that to this day by the sounds like is that something you've used for a very long time now absolutely yeah. so, so look i'm chairman of two public companies uh, yeah. healthier definitely use the the rockefeller have frameworks and and i know the uh the guys at people infrastructure without any prompting they're already on board with it before i turned up as as uh, chairman and uh, and and they go through their 90 day resets with all the little businesses inside the the people infrastructure or people in business right and healthy is similar so you know it just gives you a framework to work through and we do that with cardio nexus and some other companies but it's 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 just you know it's a way of getting hold of of feeling like you're you're not out of control as you venture forward on the on the on the business field Mm. And did you implement this all very quickly? Like, is this like the way I'm hearing this story now? It sort of seems like you went along to this this event, and then you come out, and you've got all these things. You implement it all, and you've basically then done that for quite a long time since. Am I reading that right? Yeah. It's, it, it, and look, I had a beer the other day with a group of the Green Cross leadership team, and we all reflected that it was pretty powerful journey. Uh, great culture, everyone really engaged. Uh, but I came out of that that. Vern Harner's workshop and I bought his DVDs I bought the books deeply immersed myself in it for about a month and then came back and launched it on on my leadership team I said we're going to do this stuff even the the, the you know the the daily huddle and trying to implement that in an Australian workplace it was damn hard where you go <laughs> three minutes past two every single day we're going to stop as a leadership team we're going to ask each other what are we working on what stop us what's stopping us progress and we'll do that, and we're all done in 11 minutes. Mm. And there's nine of us in the leadership team, so we did that. And and you know, you cycle through. We changed when that meeting was. Occasionally, we'd do it six minutes past eight in the morning. And then in each veterinary hospital, they'd pull up at 11 o'clock and do the same. What are we working on today? There's the, there's the whiteboard full of procedures, and 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 what's stopping us? You know, what is stopping us inside this clinic? So we cascade that daily huddle down right through the organisation, and that that was. You know, hard to implement because it's so foreign to a normal workplace. And <laughs> yeah. now, now you bump into plenty of startups and scale-ups that are doing it regularly. Mm-hmm. And you go, it's important. Everyone knows what each other's working on, mm-hmm. and we know what the focus should be. You know, the yeah. number one priority that we all agreed back at the reset. That's what the number one thing we should be working on. And there'll be other stuff, business as usual, or other stuff hijacking us that we need to just deal with. Right, a uh, stand-up. I think is another. Another name for that? Yeah, yeah, yeah the stand-up, yep. stand the daily huddle or whatever you want to call it. But it's similar. It's, it's short, sharp, it's mm. a couple of minutes per person and it's all done and dusted in you know, 10 to 15 minutes. So it's not a big imposition. And with you know, digital capabilities these days, you can be anywhere in the world and participate in your daily huddle if you're you know, 
whatever level of team you're working on. Right. So we'd do it, the senior leadership team, then the finance team would do it, the marketing team would do it, uh, the ops team would talk to the, all the area managers or, or regional partners right across the organisation, and then they, would, you know, they wouldn't ring every clinic, but the clinics would do their own version of that. Mm. So, yeah, right. you know, so it's, it's resets the company on a daily basis right through the organisation. Right. Very, very cool. And, uh, and just listening to this now and thinking about this as the, the framework you advise, there were some companies at least, to, to adopt. But do you have any other suggestions that you give leaders to develop themselves that, that don't necessarily involve this framework, but you might see something in them that you think, oh, you, you're lacking a bit here. Here's how I'm going to gently uh, yeah. point you in a certain direction. Look, I, I, I push hard on, on entrepreneurs, founders, leaders, CEOs, having a, and I call it a menagerie of mentors. Right. Just having one, I don't think is enough in today's environment. They're okay. constantly changing. You've got different uh, different issues popping up, be it what what platform CRM system or digital pr- processes you need to implement uh, HR how do you how do you deal with culture uh, finance you know so, so you assemble and as a CEO you need these different people to be able to bounce off be it weekly monthly even only three monthly is enough so I have you know different people I have a coffee with and it might be anywhere from from weekly through to three monthly um, to give it, put some input, to play with their head, mm-hmm. and, and you know, gathering mentors, peer mentors, even people who are you know doing going through a similar journey is so important. And I, and I look back on my journey, and I really didn't understand that till I was in my early forties. Okay. And I think part of that was the fact that you know you don't want to show any signs of weakness yeah. by having <laughs> yeah. external people yeah. think you've got to ask them questions. But the reality is that's a massive sign of insecurity uh, when you don't do it. Right. And, and, and it's really important to, to you know find people who are perhaps exceptional. I wouldn't say experts, but they're, you know they're, they're exceptionally knowledgeable in that area that you need support with. And and uh, and then you know often people say, how do you find a mentor? And you go, well, work out who you want to get some advice from, mm. even if it's just a one-off, mm. and reach out to them through. That your network or through LinkedIn or someone who knows someone and say, would you mind having a, a 30 minute coffee with this person? They just want to pick your brains on a couple of things. And that often starts the, the, the mentor journey. Right. That person will give me a call in a month or two and let me know how you're going. And, and next thing you're, you're meeting with these, you know, these people on a, on a regular basis. And it's not, you know, someone that they ring as a, you know, dial a friend on a, on a daily basis. It's, it's, you know, when you're having, Big issues you need to get across, you know, cultural issues. Tell me about what's going on in your organisation. So that, those sort of things are, are seriously advantageous. Mm-hmm. When you hear other people's reflections, other people's journeys, other people's experiences, and then you take that back and think how you might apply that to your own workplace. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's interesting you say that, you know, you need many mentors, like not just one. Like what I have seen like in the market, especially SMEs, I don't know whether they get the right advice. Like sometimes, you know, they just keep changing plans because they talk to many people uh, without sort of, you know, sourcing the right advice. You know, it's funny. A friend of mine in, in Townsville written a book on, on, and basically it's similar to Vern Harnish for the, in the scale-up pace, but hers is more in that, that small or micro-business space. And it's similar. You assemble, you know, a group of advisors, people you can bounce off. But maybe there is one bit, and maybe that's where business coaching is exceptionally useful. That person comes in and holds you accountable as the owner of the business, 
tell me what you, you're having trouble with. Right, what are you going to do about it? And I'll see you in a month and see how you're going. Or I'll see you next week and, and, and uh, did you do something mm. about it? Mm. So, so a business coach, peer mentor, mentor, it's sort of similar. It's just whether you want to pay someone to do it yep. or you know, if you're an accomplished CEO, then that's, that's different again. But if you're a small business owner, uh, maybe that is one space that you should think about paying someone on a regular basis to come in and help you. And they mm. are your equal to a chairman yeah. holding you account or holding and a coach does that nicely and 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 then you know a lot of small businesses won't have marketing or they won't have a financial controller but it also then means well maybe you should get an external marketing person to assist or get an external CFO or a financial controller that actually has a good look at your your financials on a regular mm. basis and you then have this this group of advisors that support and help you grow your business because they'll see different things, you know. If, you know, so I mean, you, you're, you're from an accounting background. You look at someone's books and go, you "Can see that? Look, they're not collecting their debts in time. Yeah. Um, they're, they're um, you know, letting those creditors run out. Um, their fee structure's perhaps not right. They're not charging enough for their yeah. services or their product. Um, so, you know, things will hit you straight in the face that they not might not be seen because they're mm-hmm. they're deep in the trenches on a day to day basis. And it's it's important to have that little bit of in the myth working on the business time. But when you're working on the business, perhaps then you, you start assembling some advisors or coaches that give you a little bit better support, hold your account mm-hmm. better than, than just, you know, a mate that might ask you a few questions and leave you alone. Uh, but I think it's important. I do think it's important. And, right. and, and I didn't understand the importance of that. Mm. So I had a group of peer mentors that used to ring each other and trade war stories and give each other a bit of support. I think I could have gone a lot earlier, a lot faster, a lot better uh, in my days in Townsville if I had uh, realised the importance of mentors and advisors and coaches. Right. And so you're talking about bringing in that that peer mentoring would have been helpful earlier on. Are you talking about bringing in a whole range of mentoring early on? I, I think you start with a, a good business coach, you know, an, yeah, ex, okay. an ex-CEO or someone has grown a reasonable sized business who's been in the trenches themselves. Mm. They get it because you realise you can't be great at everything. So you yeah. work out pretty quickly what you're doing a bad job of and they'll see it pretty quickly before you will and maybe that's the sort of advice they'll go well let's let's go and get a digital agency or let's go and get a mm. you know an advertising agency or let's go and get help in this structure i know you want to be across marketing and put a marketing plan but let's get help with that mm. because you can't in, in today's environment you cannot be a hero across every single aspect of business yeah. but it's and that's why a good a good coach will pick that up pretty quickly and you know there's plenty of good business coaches out there be prepared to pay a little bit of money and then over time your business grows and maybe you put together a, a, an advisory board so you've got people that are thinking strategically alongside you and challenging your thinking and then that perhaps grows up into a bigger business and you put a formal board in place and you pay people you know don't be cheap about it but yeah. you pay if you're putting an advisory board you probably should pay someone if they're going to turn up every month or every three months and challenge your thinking mm. um, you know I, a lot of mentors do it for free I do it for free because I just right. I, don't, I don't want you know, the obligation of being paid. But okay. at my board roles, I definitely get paid because yeah. I'm thinking about the company. I'm spending a lot of time trying mm. to read across global or national uh, activities around that industry you're playing in or aligned industries, and I'm, I'm trying to be a better board member every single day by reading 
across a bunch of stuff, be it white papers from McKinsey through to reading the paper on a daily basis to make sure we're not missing something. And it's important if you mm. take on a board role that you have to be able to contribute in a really you know, strategic and worthwhile and valuable way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, interesting that you know the from the mentorship thing. Like you know, I think the the CEO or the leader needs to be coachable as well. Like you know, if before you put anything, <laughs> you know, any formal arrangement, you need to be coachable as well. I guess I totally agree with that. You know, as a, as a as a CEO, you've got to remain humble and be willing to listen to other people, and that's part of that being coachable mm-hmm. or, or allowing other people's thought bubbles or opinions to, to you know to come through on, and, and and you then reflect on those things. <laughs> And, and when we talk about uh, leadership, perhaps around the, the the country now, I mean, there's there can be a lot of negativity in the media about, um, and I'm not just talking about the political level, but it, if you can read, if you read too much into the wrong things, I think, well, I can get certainly disillusioned about the the state of leadership around Australia. Do you, do you think it's really that bad? Like, how do you think we're doing, like as a country, or maybe even just as a, a city? Just answer that however you want. But uh, yeah, look, I, I, I'm I'm a uh I deeply, and I think you're aiming at politics, or you're talking CEOs. Oh, not, not, not just politics, but your corporate leaders as well, I'd say. Look, I, I, let's, let's start with politics and we can get controversial. <laughs> I, I think there's some wonderful people putting their life on the line and their, their family on the line because they're going in to do community service for the right reasons. And then there's a whole bunch that do it for, for the, you know, the narcissism. Um, so, you know, if you're going to be a politician, you've got to deeply engage and, with your community and go in there for the right reasons. And I have deep and full respect for those politicians that step up and have a go because there's plenty of us out there that will, you know, be lobbing grenades at them. And, uh, you know, if you're, you're wanting to lob grenades, then you should step up too. So, you know, I look at everything from, from mm-hmm. community golf clubs and, and uh, wherever, you know, and you just go go on the committee if you're going to lob a grenade at someone, and it's the same in politics. If you really are having a crack at the, the you know, the politicians, most of them are there for the right reasons. Some are there for the, for the narcissism. Um, CEOs, look, I think it's important that we are growing a you know, group of individuals through our organisations that are capable and be part of the succession plan for the organisation, that we are creating the next wave of leaders. And, you know, look at an organisation, say, Macquarie Bank, they are exceptional at bringing through great merchant bankers across, you know, whether they're inside or outside that organisation, they are exceptional in, in how they produced their, their crop of leaders coming through. And I look at, you know, good organisations. The thing that bothers me a little bit is the top 100, ASX top 100, that we see a pretty defined network of people only evolving into directors of right. those companies and certainly only a certain evolution of CEOs stepping into those those big roles and it bothers me that mm-hmm. there is so many great leaders coming up through you know early stage companies going through ASX 300 ASX 200 um, as directors and as and or CEOs and I think we can do a better job of a wider selection pool uh, of people that are capable to contribute in those companies that help mm-hmm. the strategic setting uh, focus where that company should play and I think uh, you know the, the good thing is is you know there's been a big push for getting more females into leadership roles and I fully agree with it you know but every female that I know well 
wants to be recognised from a meritocracy point of view. Mm-hmm. But I do agree we do have to also try and push harder and get some numbers around that. And then the other part of that is looking at, at uh, female pay rates in any organisation, that they should be aligned with any male there as well. And that's mm-hmm. always a good asset test. And it was Albanese who, who said, let's look at all companies across the spectrum and you know similar roles are our males and females being paid similar pay rates and that's a good asset test for are we treating our, our you know males and females with with equality mm-hmm. um, and and you know I, th- I can see that we do need a lot more women in leadership roles my argument is we need to think about our workplaces a little bit more because mm-hmm. a lot of workplaces it's just not conducive for females to rise up to be to be leaders because they go through that period in their you know late twenties to late thirties where they want to be mums and you know they've got to have time at home to otherwise they f- they're going to feel guilty about not helping raise the children so we've got to create workplaces that allow them to be mums and to be great leaders at the same time and and if we want more women in leadership roles, we want more women um, and diversity in our companies, we've got to look at our workplaces and perhaps adjust our workplaces rather than asking our women to adjust and work obnoxious hours. Mm. We don't need to do that to them. And I think a lot of young males are similar. You know, I, I don't need to burn myself out. Yeah. You know, set me up for a better... And it went right back to the start of our conversation. I think our employees want better workplaces for males and females mm. and that they can have be great parents or have more time outside their workplace to be more balanced human beings and our workplaces can do a better job to allow that. And I think that's going to be the, the focus in the next two or three years because of coming through the last couple of years and yep. the great resignation yep. issue. And, and COVID, you're pointing to yeah. there as well and the, the hybrid yeah. models that come in. Yeah, yeah right. the, the hybrid models yep. are great. You know, yep. I think it's important. And, yep. and you know, we want... We want Face time and face-to-face time with with mm. with people, especially around brainstorming and project development. But at the same time, we can create a better structure and a better a version of workplace yeah. to allow our males and our females to to really you know engage and want to be there. Uh, but you know, I still look at law firms, accounting firms, merchant banking firms. They burn people yeah. and think it's so yeah. bloody right to do so. I still yeah. look at it. You know, I was talking to a I was golfing on the weekend, and one person's son getting burnt like hell but you know that's okay because mm. eventually it's going to be worth a lot of money and i'm going mm. no i don't think it's okay i seriously mm. don't think it's okay i think there's a right balance mm. that you don't have to burn these young people out males yeah. and females yeah. in law accounting and merchant banking it's about the worst three professions i can think of and, yeah. and i use yes. a lot of them in my my organization <laughs> yeah. i just think we can be a little a little smarter but you know yeah. we the medical world used to be really bad and they've pulled back you know they have young doctors not sleeping for for 36 hours mm-hmm. straight that's not smart especially if you're the, the patient on the other side of that yeah. no. so we can do a better job assess our workplaces and work out what's right and what's better to, to really have our people engaged and, and and have a long successful career really engaged yeah it'll be interesting to get your take too on those people doing those enormous hours and all that type of thing are they 
Do you think they are that much more productive than a, a rested person who's working very effectively when they work? But Jack, you know the answer. To that. <laughs> no, I've been there. Like... I have been there myself as, yeah. a, as a young vet in towns. I was a young practice owner doing 70 to 80 hours a week, driving home, falling asleep at a set of traffic lights wow. and someone honking me to wake up. Yeah. I, just, look, I just knew I wasn't doing my best work. Yeah. And, okay, you're getting through it. You know, you're doing a caesarean at 2 o'clock in the morning or, or you're, you know, you're getting through it, but you're stressed, you're tired, you're emotionally fatigued, and I would argue that you're not getting the best work out of these mm. young people. Mm. They're getting the work done, they're churning through it, but they're going to miss something or they're going to do something that's that doesn't live up to expectations. That's mm. and I think you're spot on with. Mm. Interesting. Yeah, that was a Dorothy Dixon, but but, but, <laughs> but but you're spot on. You know, I don't think they're giving their best. Mm. They cannot cable when you're tired, cranky, emotionally fatigued. You cannot give your best. Mm. But you know those deals are getting done. That's what happens. You know, it's got a time frame we're working to. How can we do that smarter? Mm. How, can, how can we set up, you know, we've just gone, done a huge deal at Healthier and I was watching our accountants, legal, you know, merchant bankers involved in that feeling really, I wouldn't say embarrassed, but I was, I was concerned for them because I know they're doing massive hours, getting it done through the weekends, late at night, getting emails at, you know, 11 o'clock at night. And I felt, you know, we, we've got to be smarter and better at this, mm. you know, rather. And then they line up for the next deal because the next company will want them to do work on the next deal. So I think we can do it better. I think that's so true. Like, you know, the when it was industrial era, of course, what it, you know, when you spend more time, of course, you get more productivity. Yeah. But now it is a knowledge era. Like, you know, you need a quality time than, yep. the, you know, the amount of time. If especially the, the professionals like accountants, lawyers, doctors, yep. they need more time to think and you know reflect on and you know and to get better solutions than just uh, pumping the number of hours. Absolutely, you get stale, you get fatigued, but you, you've got to have you know you, you accept you go out of balance for a little while, but you can't keep a, a young mm. person out of balance for a couple of years. You know you work on the deals two or three in a row, and then you go right, you need some time down repair yourself and come back better engaged and, and ready to go again mm. and and you know get that feedback from from the guys driving those that hey well done and there's yeah. good pay coming but you also need some some repair time mm. yeah. and when you, you you mentioned that now it's i'm just going through all the times in my head where <laughs> i've heard people just just accept us particularly in accounting i mean we deal with a lot of yeah. accounting type um people but yeah that, that just you go to the to one of the big fours and they're going to work you to the bone and that's just that's just how it's going to be and there's no no question around it really though a lot of the time like now i'm thinking about it i haven't you know in my limited experience i haven't heard a lot of so so, so throw in an organizational psychologist or a or a i don't know go in there and have a look at that yeah. and go if we had to rewrite the rule book for how you know accounting firms or legal law, law firms work and, and it's not okay to say, well, that's how it was for us because mm. that's what the medical world did for a long time. It's not okay. So let's start with what would the ideal outcomes be for our, our clients, uh, what would be the ideal outcomes for our employees, and how might our workplace look? Start with that question. Mm. And, and you want diversity in amongst all that too because that really creates you know magic when you've got diverse thoughts and thinking productivity is is heightened so mm. perhaps you know it's a good it's a good project to work on how do you how do you improve and not burn out these young people as they exit uni as young professionals and then you burn them as hard as you can yeah. and those that survive 
be yeah, the next leaders of, of today and go, it's okay yeah. because it, I uh, went through yeah, it and through it's it. not okay. That's, yeah. that's the point. Mm. But what about, I think now I'm thinking about it too, I, I think I've come across people who uh, have the attitude, because I went through it, you have to go through it too. Yep. So it's, it takes someone to actually not want to put someone through what they went through just because oh, this is what it costs to, yep. to get here. Yep. And, you know, I, my first job as a young vet was was a great group of, of directors, Kessels Road Veterinary Hospital. And, uh, you know, the, it was a sensible roster, fair pay. Um, I got paid on call. If I did a call out, I got paid. Um, I was only on call one night a week. Uh, so, so you know, those things. So I... It, it was they'd already gone through that as a as owners of the practice and there were four owners and, and we were looked after mm. whereas a lot of my mates were you know they're doing 60 70 hours a week on on a very low salary mm. and apparently that was just how it was for the veterinary profession right so it's the same thing it's mm. it's having enlightened leaders going well it's not okay but what would it look like if we're an exceptionally productive firm that can deliver exceptional outcomes for our, our customers and our clients and we still have this amazing, engaged culture of young people and, and people right through the, the career path that really love being here. What would it look like? What, how would we do it? How would we, we execute? Mm. It's okay to think about it that way. Yeah. Amazing question. I'm just, my head's just I'm going through so many things at the moment. <laughs> yeah, but, and, and you've yeah. got to remember, yeah. vet, the veterinary profession is a tough one. It's the mm. highest suicide rate of any, yeah. of any yep. profession. And a lot of that is, is uh, it's in a very emotionally fatiguing industry. Mm. And and big part of what we did at Green Cross was, was putting psychologists in place, putting mentors, one-on-one mentors uh, in place, um, having uh, graduate programs to, to ease our, our graduates into the workplace so they felt... They weren't thrown in the deep end. Um, growing up our own support staff, so they were, you know, knew how to do things around here as a culture. Um, so we did a lot of stuff that was quite innovative um, in the early days of, of, of Green Cross Limited. Mm. Yeah, right. You, your perspective is uh, is so refreshing to to hear that you're just you're all about treating people well and. Right, God forbid, maybe they'll do a good job for you. Well, <laughs> well I'll, 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 I'll tell you a story which is lovely, and I still remember hearing this ABC driving to the Gold Coast to see some of my vet practices, and uh, the ABC said they've just named a road in Ipswich after the local doctor, and we're going to ring him now just to find out what he thinks about that. Yeah. So they've they've rung up the local doctor, they'd organised it, and the the uh, and I can't remember his name, so I do apologise to the local doctor from Ipswich, but it was about ten years ago. And uh, the the uh, commentator or the, the announcer said, well, you know, you've, they've just named a street in Ipswich after you. Why do you think that is? He said, I don't know. I seriously don't know. But I've got a lot of patients. I've been a doctor in this community for a very long time. But I can tell you the number one thing I do on a consult-by-consult basis, every single interaction I have, I intentionally be nice to people. And I've taken that as a thing that I do with my people, my, my employees in the practice and every single patient that comes in. So maybe it's that, that I intentionally be nice. Right. Mm. And, so and, simple. And, and, and I think it's the same with employees as customers. Yeah. You know, it's not hard to go, you know, I, I expect great productivity out of you. I'm expecting to push mm. you, but what do I have to do to make life better here for you as an employee? Mm. You know, from a customer's point of view, I want to be totally engaged with you. You're not going to get it cheap because I can't be cheap and I can't be good at the same time as a service or a product. Mm. But if I'm going to be really, you know, your preferred professional service or whatever it is, 
what do I have to do to be the best by you? Mm. So just asking those questions and, and try to be authentic about how you respond and, 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 and look after your people and your customers. Mm. Absolutely fascinating. I'm just yes. trying to trying to formulate another question <laughs> while I, my head goes through all these uh, possibilities. But uh, we we won't take up too much more of your time. We really appreciate you coming along today, Glenn. But uh, for, well, I've got a few wrap up questions. But uh, firstly, will we see you back on TV anytime soon? Where uh, we're all missing, we're all missing your, your <laughs> look, face I, on the big on the smaller screen. Look, I, I hope they bring back Shark Tank. I think yeah. it was important for the the startup community and the scale up community. You know, there's a lot of education content that actually came through around the responses of, of the panellists and as sharks. Uh, it was great to, to profile businesses and it was even better when we actually made investments and helped small companies on their journey. So I'm hoping it comes back. Uh, will I be on it? That's a good question. I don't know. I, right. you know I'm enjoying my, my space at the moment. I've, I've okay. got a pretty good lifestyle. So Geez, if it'd have to be Steve Baxter getting me drunk again for sure. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, um, yeah. Well, hopefully, hopefully uh, it comes back and you do decide to to step back in the ring. But uh, of you. course, like it sounds like you've got a, a good life, as you said. So, again, sorry. Before we finish off, I do usually ask at this stage though what uh, advice you'd have for your younger self as a leader. But I want to do something different with you because I think we've covered that in this conversation and maybe something what advice would you have for an aspiring leader say around the maybe 25 mid 20s maybe up to sort of early 30s like if you were if you were to give something at this stage some advice what would you say to someone of of that age you know i look back when i was in my 20s as a young male you just don't know what you don't know so you have this humble arrogance that you think you can do everything and and uh, my advice to the to the to the males in their 20s uh, seek out good mentors you knew I was going to say that seek out peer mentors bounce off each other but stay humble and mm. you just don't know what you don't know so therefore it's probably a good idea to de-risk your journey by seeking out uh, people that have had experience in business on the journey in maybe similar industry or similar business to yours and go and seek them out uh, from Young females in their twenties look; they definitely have to step up because, you know, they don't have that bloody testosterone running in their body. So they tend to be a lot more humble and a little bit more wary about embracing the entrepreneurial journey. And it's lovely to see the network of women that are really engaging in embracing and supporting young women coming through. And and you know, as a mentor, I love mentoring young people and helping them on their journey Um, and the number one thing I say to young females believe in yourself have a go because you are so much more capable than you think and and it's not a sexist comment it's just something I've seen from mentoring you know we had 96% of our our workforce in Green Cross were female they're just Mm. wonderful the way they approach they are far less aggressive on competing against others and that testosterone thing in males tend to to make them want to compete harder but I'm seeing you know women when they're supported they'll compete don't worry about that they are wonderful entrepreneurs and wonderful Mm. leaders um, and probably more emotionally aware uh, than a lot of a lot of male leaders which makes them so important in the leadership teams Mm. so i want to see the rise and rise of of young people coming up and expecting to be in leadership roles expecting to start businesses but stay humble except Mm. you don't know everything and find good mentors and peer mentors that are going to help de-risk your journey, going to challenge your thinking and remind you to, to simply stay humble and most importantly, to have a go. Right. 
Amazing. Fantastic. Amazing. I, uh, yeah, sorry, sorry for the, the delays in my questions every time. I just, uh, just <laughs> processing good. these things because <laughs> oh, uh, good, yeah. you've certainly challenged my thinking today on a, on a few things. So, uh, yeah, but uh, I guess it's a, it's a good chance for me to, to publicly thank you for, for everything you've done, done for me in particular over the years. Glenn, you've, uh, five years ago, I think we met, you did a podcast with me on another, on another podcast and uh, spoken at a couple of my events. You've been very giving to a young, well, that was a young 20-year-old something <laughs> male at that time with a, probably a bit of testosterone. But uh, uh, and a lot of people say the same thing about you, that you, you're doing a lot for the business community, a lot for entrepreneurs. And um, having someone as skilled as you come in and, and share your knowledge, I think, is really valuable. So, uh, yeah, thank you for everything you've done for me. Thank you for, for coming along today again and, and sharing, sharing your, your philosophy. I really appreciate the invite, Jack, and Sumi, and, and uh, thoroughly enjoyed the conversation. Awesome. And if anyone wanted to find you somewhere, where should they go? LinkedIn's, or should they not find you? Uh, <laughs> LinkedIn's a good space, and yeah. uh, Jody generally keeps an eye on my, my LinkedIn messaging, and, and, uh, and I do respond often. Okay. Great. Yep. So Jody being your personal system. Yeah. Yep. So awesome. Glenn Richards, thank you so much for coming in today and speaking to us. Thanks, Lynn. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Books to the Boardroom podcast. Show notes can be found at briska.com.au slash podcast. And don't forget to hit subscribe wherever you are listening to this podcast.